0: Welcome to the Business Done Differently podcast, where we believe whatever's normal, do the exact opposite, and that standing out is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Jesse Cole, and it's showtime. This is special. Today's guest is Ken Silver. And this man who I'm sitting next to right now in actually Mexico today, maybe the biggest impact on my career. He was the owner of the Gastonia Grizzlies, hired me right out of college, we later became partners, and years later, you married my wife, me and Emily, on our field here in Gastonia today i'm just excited to have one of my biggest mentors share kind of our story, how we worked together, and had a lot of fun along the journey. So Ken, welcome to the show today. Thank you very much. pleasure to be here so. This is going to be fun because I think you had a lot of experience. You didn't start as a baseball guy. You got into the baseball business. And I get asked the question now, how do you go about buying a baseball team? And the answer I now make usually is uh took on a lot of debt. And that's how it started for me. But what about for you? How did you get into the baseball business? Share your
1: story from a business standpoint to understand how we kind of came together. I got into the baseball business in a very different way. I was watching my son play hockey. And I was sitting talking to one of the parents at 5 a.m. in the arena, and he was telling me about an investment that he had that uh, he was looking for a fourth partner, and it was to purchase the Modesto A's in California. And I had played baseball in college, and I, was, I wasn't very good, but I played, and I figured this would be the only way I could get into baseball. So long story short, my wife and I decided to invest in this baseball team, and we were one of four partners, and we purchased the Modesto A's, and that goes back to 1989.
0: 1989. and so what happened like what did you do you're like you've never owned a baseball team you've never been a part of this. How did you learn what to do because I remember you telling a little bit about going on trips and trying to
1: see other teams and taking the kids. basically, what we did is I mean I looked at it from a business standpoint first after I met with this individual, he brought over tax returns and financial statements and all kinds of things that yeah, I was familiar with being a CPA, and I was able to analyze it to the best of my ability and, and I had given him the go-ahead, and then when my wife, who had been away for the weekend, came home, and I mentioned to her that I thought we ought to buy a baseball team. <laughs> I think that was probably the closest I ever came to being divorced. <laughs> but it uh, worked out real well. But at that time, minor league teams,
0: and now even today, they weren't making a lot of money. They were I mean, this was where a lot of minor league teams were, hey, can we try to break even? Where was Modesto, and where was kind of the state of minor
1: league baseball then? Modesto was, hey, I hope we can break even and hopefully gain some equity as a team appreciated in value. We did okay, we did pretty much as good as any of the teams were doing because minor league baseball was not uh, typically a great investment. You would hope that you'd get in, keep it for a while, and be able to sell it and make some money. And so you had Modesto for how many years? We had Modesto from 1989 to 1994. And you sold that to go where? We sold the Modesto team, and we wound up in the interim since we... Purchased the Modesto team in 89, I really enjoyed it and I really thought we could make a go of it in different markets. So we looked for a club and we wound, wound up buying a club in 1990 in Savannah, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And we also I also bought into a club in Welland, Ontario, which was uh, to say it was a baseball <laughs> town would be the biggest lie I could make. It was all hockey. They, they were totally uncaring about the baseball team. But we wound up buying the three teams.
0: So you had three teams at once, and most of those teams, they weren't drawing that well. I mean, what was typical
1: attendances for these teams? Well, Savannah, we had a a joke that it was uh, 300, 2,000, which meant that we would probably put about 300 fans into the seat, which is nowhere near enough, and maybe bring in revenue of $2,000. And the Welland franchise was even worse than that. But Desto did okay. And over time, we learned a little bit. We didn't know much about baseball when we first got into it, but we learned a little bit. And uh, it improved to the point where we sold, we moved well into Erie, Pennsylvania, who offered to build us a stadium. And that was a gift from heaven. And then we, we kept that club in Erie until 1998.
0: And put in context that you shared a little bit, the Erie team, I mean, every night was selling out. What was so different? Because those other teams that were drawn 300, 500, like, you got the new stadium, but what, what made it special? Erie had just
1: lost their baseball team. Yeah. And the town of Erie, the city of Erie, really doesn't have a whole lot going for it. Yeah. It's um, we used to call it dreary Erie or the Mistake by the Lake. <laughs> it's cold in April when you start baseball season starts. The weather's awful, so there wasn't a lot for the fans to do. So Erie offered to build us this magnificent stadium, which was state of the art at the time and had luxury boxes, great seating, great access. They rerouted bus routes so they'd be able to take the fans from anywhere in the city to the game. And the city went overboard to try to make this work. And it, and it did. Every night was a sellout near it. So the city was all in. So that was special. And then you end up... You know, that's critical. Yeah. For the city to be yeah. all in, and you really need that. Yeah. So,
0: all right. So you had these teams. You had Savannah, which obviously full circle now with mm-hmm. the bananas. So you had Savannah and marginal success. You had fan- some nights you had... Fan- I mean, John Smoltz night did okay.
1: John Smolt's night was a special night. We did nothing to promote it. It was uh, uh, John Smoltz was rehabbing with the Atlanta Braves and we got a call from the Braves saying that um, they were going to send John who was playing for Make, or he was going to play with the Macon team who was going to play Savannah in about two or three nights. And all we did was make three phone calls to TV stations and newspapers and the place was sold out.
0: And so... That was about six or seven thousand people? Yeah, about seven. And that's when they had the big. I can't even picture that in Savannah. That's crazy. Crazy (laughs) night. All right. So you you took over, you had these different teams. You had success, obviously, selling the teams, as you shared before. And then you decided to go into college summer
1: baseball. I did. That was a gift from my son, Michael, who uh, had moved down into the Gastonia area. He was a practicing chiropractor then. And he saw this college summer league baseball team. He said, he knew it was for sale, and he he said, "Dad, you you really have to take a look at this." So we did, and uh, we wound up buying the Gastonia franchise, which was not a good franchise, but it was in the second year when we bought it. But our fortunes changed a little later, a little later
0: on. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so you had
1: so you bought Gastonia in the second season. I think it was like two thousand and three, maybe two thousand three. And the numbers were not good, abysmal. A couple yeah. hundred people. Yeah, we'd get uh, maybe three four hundred on an average night, and it, it wasn't it wasn't a popular pastime in Gastonia.
0: And so what was the challenge for you in Gastonia was it just having people that like what why was it not
1: working? Well, I don't think personally myself I've never had the mindset of being able to create demand. Marketing has never been my thing. Mine was always the financial end and that was my strength. Yeah. But not being able to hire the right people and not being able to put my own creative ideas in there, which I didn't have. Yeah. That hurt us. So the success of the teams often depended on who you had
0: and who you had running and who you had, I mean, coming up with ideas. So basically for 20 years or going in, or I guess that was about 15 years going to Gastonia, it was some years were successful, some weren't, but it really wasn't necessarily community. It was the people. Right. And that's where you got, it really became, you gave me the opportunity. And so that's where I want to get into because I think that's a as I've
1: shared before, you became such a huge mentor because of your leadership style. Well, I appreciate the compliment. It was one of those things that uh, by 2007 and 2008, I was really at my wits end trying to figure out how to make this work. We would go and we were losing money. We weren't making anything and no one was coming to the game. What type of money? I mean, how, how bad was it? You could take up to six figures yeah. in some of the years. and um, you know, It was not abnormal to lose 50000 75000 a year. That was pretty typical and even worse than that mm. until I hired this young, <laughs> young, enthusiastic, uh, sales guy who had worked for us in Spartanburg. Yes. Every week when I would get the sales results from, sales results from our Spartanburg franchise, I would see under the salesman, I would see these initials JC. I didn't know how he was able to do it, but I wound up meeting with Jesse and talking a little, little more seriously mm. about possibly him taking over the general manager's job in Gastonia because nothing else seemed to have worked.
0: And so this is where our relationship started because you know, I was just out of college. In college, I was working for that Spartanburg team. And that team was a challenge to say the least. I remember at that point, I was an intern, but it was just commission only. So it was, you only get paid if you sell things. But the biggest things you could sell were about 250 or $400. That's right. So I was selling program ads. I remember going door to door. And selling program ads for 250 bucks, or a game sponsorship for $500 and trying to get people excited. And the revenues were very low. It was very small trying to get people convinced on this team. But it was at that point that my career ended from playing baseball. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I was potentially going to coaching. But then you and Jack Thompson at the time, who was overseeing both teams, said, we're going to give this intern a shot at being
1: a general manager.
0: In your all years of minor league baseball, did you ever give someone very young that
1: much opportunity? No, I haven't. It was something that I was really kind of at my wits end. I needed to do something really radically different. Jack had indicated, he said, Jesse's the only guy selling anything. And he said, you really need to sit down with him and see what he brings to the table. And in truth, we did. We went out to lunch. I remember the luncheon we went out to, and I remember... Coming home and shaking my head and thinking, I just don't know about this guy. <laughs> I don't know if he can hate a kid.
0: Well, well, you said that. And I remember one of the first days in the office in September, and this is right after I found out all the numbers, how many people were coming to the games and how people had no idea who we were. And it was a tough situation. And you walked in and we had a, an assistant GM who you had worked with before. She was an intern. And you said, I know about you. But you looked at me and said, I'm not too sure about you. Mm-hmm. I remember sitting there and I was like, wow. And I went home and I called my dad and I was like, Dad, I don't know if I don't know. Like he's not too sure about me. He goes, "Well, Jesse, you know, a lot of people aren't sure of a lot of things. You can prove them right or prove them wrong. It's up to you." And that really motivated me. At that point, I was like, "I'm going to try to make you proud." When you said that, it was just you being honest, correct? Oh, absolutely.
1: Yeah. I really wasn't sure. I mean, we made the move and I'm sitting here thinking I've just entrusted this franchise, which is worth a fair amount of money, yes. to a 23-year-old guy that I just don't know. I don't know if he's got it. If he doesn't <laughs> have it, and You know, he's young.
0: So, I mean, obviously, there's a huge level of empowerment. But the lesson that I'm trying to think from a a business standpoint to empower someone like that, was it more just for you because it was a necessity? You weren't sure what else to do? What
1: Uh, gave you that? uh, Well, I knew I needed something radically different. different. I had brought in baseball guys that, you know, theoretically had sold and done this and done that in the baseball world. And nothing worked. We had gone through a number of GMs. And nothing was successful. And I knew what I had to do was something completely different, Mm. completely off the wall. And you were off the wall.
0: (laughs) So when did things start to change? So when did you go from not too sure about me? Because I want to try to get this idea from a leadership standpoint. How do they empower someone and then start giving them full reign and saying, you know what? I believe in this. I'm going to support it. What started to change? And what were some of the things like, is he really doing this? Like, what was the process
1: for you? Well, the process for me was watching you on a day-to-day basis where you really put all your enthusiasm into the job. You worked as hard as you could possibly work. You brought in some sales. But what really what really turned the corner for me was when I sat down with you one afternoon and you said to me, Ken, I want to do something really different. And I said, okay. And the, the lights are going off in my head. Watch <laughs> out. And you started talking about this midnight madness game. And it was going to be on a Friday night and we were going to start it at midnight. Which... In baseball, by midnight everybody's asleep. And Friday nights are your biggest games. Usually. Yeah, Friday nights a great game. So it's it's basically taking a game and, and almost throwing it away, in the sense that I can't imagine people coming to the game at midnight. I can't. And I'm listening to this to Jesse tell me about all these things he's going to do, and it's going to be the biggest night we've ever had. And that was a turning point for me because when I went home and I talked to my wife Betty, I said, you know, I just probably made the biggest mistake of my life. I'm turning this game over to Jesse for a midnight game, and I don't think anybody's going to show up. And when it happened, and that Friday night I got there, I couldn't even find a parking spot. It was absolutely insane how many people. It was the biggest night we ever had, and Jesse was walking around with this grin of his face all <laughs> night. And I said, you know what? I may have something here. And then and the rest was history. You know, it's funny because I think about having something to prove.
0: And I've started taking this a little bit with with young people that we hire and say, hey, I'm not too sure about you, too. You know, you're an underdog. You're not on paper. I had nothing. I played baseball. A That's very true. mediocre career. All right. And then that was it. And then I sold some things for a team. I sold some $250 ads. Mm-hmm. But giving that mindset of have some to prove. So when you, you did say I'm in mean, that madness, you said, Jesse, uh, I'm not sure about this. But if you think that it'll do well. And I remember, all right. Game on. And it became kind of this mission. Can I actually get people to show up? And we had 3,000 people show up for a midnight game because we had activities and events. But you took this mindset, which I think is the best. I tell everyone the best leadership advice I've ever received. What do you think? And it says, what do you think form of leadership? How did that come about? Because everything I, I mean, I remember the first few days, our players are going to be doing choreographed dances. We're going to do donut burgers and donut dogs because they're heart-stoppingly delicious. We started coming up with colon cleansings and did to China nights. I mean, we tried it all. And I would go and come to you, Ken, thinking about doing this. And you'd say, I don't know, Jesse, what do you think? Where did that come from? How did that leadership Boy, style develop?
1: That actually came when I got my master's degree at the University of Michigan. I had a professor. It was a case study class. And I had a professor that constantly berated us almost that if, when you were in a position of management – and you have people below you, the only way to make them better, the only way to do that is to challenge them. If they come up with an idea, you've got to support it. And if it works, you've made somebody hungry. You've made somebody enthusiastic. You've given somebody a a lease on life to be able to go out and say, I can do this and I can do better things. And if they fail, they fail. You know, We all fail at something once in a while. But that advice always stuck in my head. And then when you started asking me for all these crazy things, I said, you know what? Professor Brophy would be very proud of me. Go do it.
0: So how did he do it for you? And, And as you were coming up in business and started your own tax firm and stuff, how did people give you the
1: opportunity to make your own decisions and own your own ideas? Well, basically what happened is I had a CPA practice and I was hiring accountants and people to run the office. And with every accountant that I had, I would basically kind of indoctrinate them in what we needed to do, but I would always be mindful of the fact that they needed to do it in their way. If I hired them, I hired them because I thought I saw something creative or something really intelligent in them. And if I went gave them a client said, I want you to take care of this client, I didn't sit there and and look over their shoulder and say, did you do this? Did you do that? Did you do this? I turned it loose with them and and the finished product was financial statements and the tax returns. And it didn't always work out. I had accountants that didn't get it. They didn't want to do a community give back (laughs) night.
0: But playing the odds, and obviously numbers is a big part of your life, you knew that the more times you give people this ownership and empower them, the chances of failure is smaller than being a micromanager. Is that just something that you kind of put in your mind? Because I don't think very many leaders are scared. To say, hey, you do this even though I have the experience. I know that may be the best way to handle a client. That might be the best way. I've been in the baseball industry for 15 years. This is kid, 23 years old. He does, maybe doesn't know it. How did that happen? Because like, I think that's so key for people to figure out.
1: Well, you've you got to give them the lead. You've got to let them do their own thing. You yeah. hire them because you saw something in them. And unless you let them be creative and unless you let them create what they want to, they're never going to grow and if they're never going to grow, your practice isn't going to grow.
0: Yes, it makes so much sense. And then, but it, you took it to an extreme after the first year. I did. So when you came to me and said, "What do you think your salary should be?" <laughs> I, Ken, Ken, twenty-four years old. All right. Now again, if you minor league baseball. The salaries are abysmal to start for everybody. I mean, Emily, my wife, and working for a high-profile minor team, started at 19000 And after a year, they're like, you did a great job. Here's a $500 raise. That's you know, right. That's right. It, that's where everyone was in the 20000 After the first year, we're fortunate. A lot of these crazy ideas worked. We doubled the revenue. We tripled the fans. We had a big year. You came down and said, Jesse, you know, what do you think your salary should be? Where did that come from? Because as the listeners know, we did that with our staff in Savannah just a couple of years ago.
1: It was just something, to me, it was an offshoot. Again, it's not something that was drummed into my head. To me, it was an offshoot of of the whole idea of what do you think. (laughs) And if you let somebody set their own salary, you know they're going to work to earn it. If you've got the right person. If you don't, then, you know, you part ways. But with you in particular, you had shown me so much in the prior year. You came up with ideas that I couldn't fathom. It's not something that works. My brain doesn't work creatively like yours does. And when you came up with these ideas and everything seemed to work, I said, you know, why not let him set his own salary? He'll work to make it work. And at the point I was 24, my first year, my salary was 27000
0: but I got a bonus because I hit all these Uber numbers. You hit them all. So I got to, I got to 30,000 my first year and I came back and said at 24, I'd like to make 40,000. But I remember saying, but I think I can increase revenues of the team and fans by, you know, increase revenue by a hundred thousand dollars. And you just said, Yes. My question to you is, what if I said something even, like, did you have an idea? Like, I get asked this
1: question. When you let them run, what if they said they want six-figure salaries? I would have said at that point, if you said you wanted to go from, you know, 30, 30 to, to 100, I would have said, well, show me how you can justify it. I can't imagine myself saying, okay, do <laughs> yeah. it. you know, I, yeah, yeah. I, I don't see that. But I would have said to you, and I, you know, you're a reasonable guy. And I felt pretty comfortable knowing that you would come back to me with something that we could all live with. You knew the numbers very well. You knew, we couldn't afford 100000 No one's ever called me reasonable before. That's, yeah. that's, I appreciate yeah, it. I, you, are, and, you
0: are. So at 24 years old, 23, I felt like I was an owner in the team. And just two years later, you came to me and said, hey, here's an opportunity for some shares to be a managing partner to really feel like you're a part of it. Now, Probably strategic, but also you thought this was a great decision. How did like how did that process, you and Betty talking, how did that come about?
1: You just want to keep giving your key people incentives. Yes. and would you, Whatever incentive you can come up with that catches the attention of your people, you want to do it. Yeah. Especially, you know, giving your shares of stock to me was a natural progression of what you were doing. Yes. And then, you know, you take that to the next level where all right, you have shares, you're running the club. It's your club. Yes. I'm sitting in the background. You're running the whole thing. And at some point in time, you have to say, and I know we had this conversation on many of our drives back and forth to Martinsville, yeah. was, Jesse, I think you should own this team. I think yeah. you should buy it. And I think you should take it over. And you did. That,
0: that happened. Yeah, it happened and then uh, had a lot of success with that. So I think what's really interesting, Ken, in, in thinking about this progression, you were able to have a more successful team by literally letting go more. You were letting go in the sense of you weren't, in there every day, making decisions. You've had that management style before. Did you ever get other than Midnight Madness? Were there any other things where you got like scared or like I don't know what we're doing? Like how did those other things? Because I think most leaders feel like I can't do this.
1: Well, the Midnight Madness did it. I didn't think it would work, but I we did. It worked. <laughs> then you came to me with what I thought was the most harebrained scheme of all was this community give back.
0: Night, uh, yeah, great where
1: you were going to charge nothing and give away uh, free tickets and free food and. Sunday when we don't get anybody there. It's going to get sponsors. Yeah, we got. well, that was the key. (laughs) I'm looking at this thing thinking, what are we going to do for revenue? We're going to have a free game. And I'll tell you, when I got to the ballpark on Sunday, and I think the game was a five o'clock game, if I'm not mistaken. It was an early game, yeah. And I got there around two, and the line was around the stadium. And as I'm walking from my car to you, again, you had that same (laughs) same grin on your face. It's almost like
0: a winked smile. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I got approached by so many fans that wanted to kiss my feet for doing this. And I'm sitting here thinking, oh, my God, this is crazy. And then you started telling me that you had sold these sponsorships. And it it turned out to be a win-win for everybody. The fans loved it. They got to eat for nothing. They saw a baseball game. And you you sponsored the game. And the the community sponsored the game. And it wound up being uh, revenue positive.
0: Yeah. We couldn't fit people in the stadium. It was huge. What were some of the things, you know, we had 10 years together. Right? We talked from time to time, but what were some of the, uh, the funniest, favorite moments that you had? Because, I mean, again, you've owned teams for 20 years, and then we started doing things pretty ridiculous. Were we there, did. Were there moments that stand out, or you were just like,
1: just laughing because I can't believe you own a team that's doing this kind of stuff? After we got through that, those first couple of promotions, you know, and I realized that I had something really special in you, and I could be able to say, I'm just going to back off and let this guy mm. run. And you did some crazy stuff, but I never felt not confident again. I always felt positive that you were going to make it work. Mm. And, you know, I think of some of the things that you and I have been through. I mean, you know, we, we purchased a club in Martinsville, Virginia. Yes. And the trips you and I would take for two and a half hours each way to go to a ball game. It's too numerous to mention. It's just, <laughs> it was just such a fun experience. We got very close and, yeah. um, We had some great times. And I'll tell you, the highlight, the highlight of my baseball career was marrying you and Emily. (laughs) It was such a kick. And you got your ordained for that. I did. And And I remember when you asked us, you came to our house and and asked Betty to sing and you asked me to marry you. I said, I can't, I can't do that. Yes. And you know, being around you long enough, I should never have said can't (laughs) because you said, yeah, you can. So um, I like to say that I spent three years in the Himalayas studying, and I got <laughs> yeah. ordained, but that wasn't true. But I did get ordained, and marrying you was just the highlight, marrying you and Emily.
0: Well, if Emily and I met for the first time in that field, and you gave me an opportunity where most owners would think you were crazy for doing, and I think even people in the league and the other but owners said, what is this 23-year-old running a team? You gave me that chance. Then we hired Emily. You let me have that opportunity to hire Emily, be a part of it. We got close. We met on that field. Who else was going to marry us? I mean, it all came together because of that. And uh, with 10 inches of rain pouring on oh, us at that, that wedding, Betty singing, it was... That it was, was special. It was pretty special. It was really special at night. With our 10 years together plus as partners and, and working together, what were some of the lessons that you learned that maybe people can take in other, not just sports, but other business? What did you see in, from a management style, from ideas, from creativity, anything?
1: The management style it was really you encourage your people to succeed by letting them do what they believe in um if you can sit back and say, "I may not agree with what they 're attempting to do, but i darn well i 'm not going to do anything to stop them i 'm going to let them do their thing and that's to me that 's always been the biggest lesson is that you have you hire people you believe they're good people let them do their own thing.
0: Something that was like important for me was that i just wanted to make you proud. And I think you gave me that opportunity. I was constantly saying, hey, Ken, we're doing this. We're doing this. I was so excited to call you. And I think that's something interesting from a leader. Can they find people that you can tell they want to make you proud? And like, I've noticed this now with our young staff. It's like, Jesse, we're doing this. What do you think about this? And when you see that, that passion, that excitement, I mean, that goes a long way. I mean, do you remember that, the the calls and like how excited
1: I'd be? I do. I get those calls and it it reinforces the idea that I made the right hire Mm -hmm. and I'm handling it so what I think is the best way possible and that you've got a guy, you believe in him. He's proven that he knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Let him do it. Yeah, You know, give him as much freedom as he wants. Mm-hmm. And I always and want to pay him what yeah. uh, he, he deserves. You let The last think- thing you want is to have somebody unhappy. That's in such a responsible position. You can't be unhappy. You can't let that happen.
0: I always thought every week, could I call you with good news? Cause remember when I started, the team was in really tough. You were getting calls for six, seven years. We need money we're struggling, we're, it's going to rain. It was probably a lot of negative calls. And I remember you saying, it's like, I hate getting these calls. And I can only imagine getting those calls saying, hey, I have to put more money because the team I own is failing. That was awful. Just awful. So I took that mindset of how can I call you every week with just good news? And can I call you and share, hey, you wouldn't believe we just sold a huge sponsorship. You wouldn't believe you know, we're going to sell out this game. You wouldn't believe all these different ideas. And that was my mindset. And I'm hoping as as an owner, you were thinking, I actually like giving calls from Jesse, and I think about that with our team. It's like, don't be afraid to always call. If you have even the littlest good stuff, mm-hmm. if you can bring good things,
1: because as an owner, you're just wondering, how's my team doing? How's my baby doing? Well, that's a great style. And from your standpoint, to be able to do that to somebody that you're reporting to, mm-hmm. to be able to just give them good news is. Wonderful. Yeah. It's absolutely wonderful.
0: I learned so much from you and the way that you gave me that opportunity that I think I always try to be that for our team and our people. And I think about how did you learn that and how did you develop? And you mentioned the professor, but what other mentors did you have in your life? People that you really learned from?
1: I had um, a tax, a friend of mine who we worked in the same accounting firm and he had uh, his own tax practice. And he taught me some things about how to handle clients and how to make the client feel that that he's your only client. You had to make the client feel very important. It was an extremely good lesson because it taught me that no matter how many clients I had, and I have a pretty sizable tax practice, each one of those clients needs to feel that they're my only client, that I'm giving them 100% attention. To me, that was a huge lesson in my field, in the accounting field. Mm. With you, the, the biggest lesson I ever had was, again, I got that from Professor Brophy, but I really mm-hmm. lived it. I bought into that theory hook, line, and sinker. I said, I am going to let make this guy feel mm-hmm. that this is his team.
0: I think about what you talk about making people feel like they matter, that's kind of how Fans First Entertainment was built. And what we're doing is from how do you make everyone feel like this is their team, that we care, we're putting them first. And I remember our lunches. You were never distracted. When we had, I mean, we grabbed lunches all the time when we first started. Again, let's grab lunch. Let's grab lunch. And we talk about ideas. And you were always so focused. And so you learned that idea from the tax mentor. What about, you used to
1: talk so positively about John Henry Moss? Uh, John Henry Moss. He was another one. John was the commissioner of the South Atlantic League. And he lived for that league. That's all he cared about. And he did everything in his power to make that league the most successful of all the minor leagues. Make it the best run league. And John taught us some great lessons as well, in the sense that John let ownership, that the owners of the 13 clubs in the league at the time, dictate what was going to be done. Mm. John would have ideas and say, let's talk about what are the new franchise fees going to be. As people buy into the league, we kept raising the franchise fee. And it was John's opinion that that came out best when he let the owners, ownership decide. Mm. When I first got in, I think the Franchise Free was $1.3 million. Hmm. and over the years, it went up to $6 million.
0: And so he helped you. You guys were a part of it, and then later when he died, you were, you were on his side, and you actually spoke at his funeral.
1: Uh, yeah, at yeah. his funeral. It's a, a kind of a sad, funny story. John and I got very close, because John was looking to start his own college summer league. And he took me, he said, Ken, I want you to, to help me with this. And I would have done anything for John. He was that kind of a guy.
0: why would you do anything for him? Like, how did he make you feel to say, I'll do anything for this guy?
1: John had my best interest at heart from the time I interviewed. I interviewed for the South Atlantic League when I purchased the Savannah franchise Mm. back in 1990. And I interviewed with the board of directors and John. And the board of directors was comprised at the time of six of the most selfish, greediest people I've ever met in my life Mm. to the point where... They were talking about expanding the league, and they wanted me to agree to give up my share if I came into the league. They didn't have the ownership interest at heart, Mm. and John wouldn't hear of it. We were in a meeting, and I stormed out of the meeting. I was so upset because the ownership said, Ken, we can approve you, but only if you're willing to give up your share of the new franchise fee that the new teams are going to pay. And I said, why would I do that? Well, you don't own it yet. I said, but I will be. I'll be stepping in the league as a full-fledged mm-hmm. owner, and John Moss stood up and said, "You people are disgraceful. You're absolutely disgraceful." I left, but I gained a real healthy respect for John. And every interaction I had with John after that, he always had my
0: best interest at heart. He always had your back. So yeah. go back to that story. I just—it's fascinating to me. So go back to the story of the, the
1: funeral. And oh see. yeah. So I'm sorry. Got, I got way late. there. Yeah. So when John died, I was asked to speak at his funeral as well as Pat O'Connor, who was the minor league uh, president. Pat flew in from Los Angeles, and we were sitting in church in the service, and the two of us were ready to speak. And somebody dropped the ball, and Pat, who had flown in specifically for that thing, never got asked to speak. And neither did I. So neither one of us spoke. and We looked at each other like, what? I mean, to me, it was easy. I was there. He lived very close, but Baptu went from California to be here, and neither one of us spoke. Wow! But it was an honor to be asked. And we, we were asked by John's family to yeah. speak. Well, somebody messed up somewhere.
0: Yeah. Well, John had your back, and I think about you having my back. I mean, did you have to defend me and what we were doing? To like, <laughs> I'm actually very uh, probably to, Betty, to probably to Betty a little bit. Like, oh, we're doing this, but do you at the moments like whether the old commissioner or the league was like, oh, it's okay, we're doing this? Did you have to defend me at all to yeah.
1: fans? The ownership in that league was more. Here's an example. You'd get together after six months of no meetings or whatever, and you'd walk in and you'd meet one of the owners and you'd say, "Ken, I'm still not getting over the fact that you our guy threw a three two curveball <laughs> to you and they didn't call it a strike." It's like I'm not sure that's why we're in this league. Yeah, that's where the mindset was, and everything was geared around baseball. Yeah, and the commissioner of that league, Pete Bach, was also geared to baseball. Yeah, and there was nothing to step out of the box. Everything had to be in the box. Mm. You know, you're playing baseball. That's what we're here for. And when we started doing some of these wild things, like for example, and we did the Midnight Madness, I took such ridicule mm. for that Midnight Madness game until it came off. And no one, absolutely no one would play us.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, I asked any of the teams you around. You to convince your other team. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> I went to every owner. I said, would you guys consider playing for, yeah. and I would be willing to do this for you yeah. and this for take, you yeah. and take some of the expenses off your back and we'll take them. They all laughed at me. No <laughs> one wanted to do it. And they said, that's stupid. That's yeah. just a bad idea. Yeah. So I was able to convince the ownership of our other team.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you had a good talk with yourself. I did. I had a
1: good talk with myself, and uh, that's why I was always far sitting and gestoning. Yeah. Well,
0: I remember it was at a point too. Is like a GM should not be in the dunk tank every game, and it was oh, yeah. from the, the league management. A GM should not be doing this. A GM should, and I think that's what I remember calling you on those first days. I go, Ken, these numbers are tough. I go, the only way we can be successful is if we're no longer a baseball team and we're in the entertainment business. They mm-hmm. were saying, well, what do you have in mind? And you, I was like, well, our players are going to be doing
1: choreographed dances, grandma beauty pageants, and it's going to be a circus. Yeah, and I took heat for that in the league because they felt we were making this. A mockery. A mockery, yeah. A mockery yeah. of baseball. And it wasn't, to me, it was never about baseball. It's about. Entertainment, you know, you bring fans in. You gotta, you gotta show them something more yeah. than just baseball.
0: And then we yeah. ended up winning a championship. We started winning more games. Russell Wilson's on the field dancing with us and playing.
1: And That's right. We, you know, it's funny. You, you talk about we became known. It was a clown show. Yeah, we had a clown <laughs> show, and yet we won. Was two thousand nine. And 10 we won well, yeah. for going oh no Far City
0: no we won in 2011 2009-10 we, we had one of the better records in the league
1: I think Far City well Far City won in 9-10 yeah, yeah so yeah. you know we would
0: three trips in the row for your teams
1: yeah. yeah and it was this was all about baseball well we solved the baseball thing and we're having fun doing it. Yes. And again, you taught me more about that, yeah. the idea that this can be more fun. I always felt we had to do something, but I just didn't have the creative juices that you did. Yeah.
0: Well, it's everything. We, we had nothing to lose. I think no, when it comes. We sure we, I mean, really, it was a point where I don't think you and Betty could have owned the team much longer if they kept failing. You shared this later. It's like if we yeah. kept losing money, we couldn't have done it that much longer. And so I was like, hey, we're at this low point. Let's just try it. And we started testing everything, and you let everything. You're really giving away a colon cleansing right now? Like, you're really, like, you're doing this. And (laughs) we would sit laughing. It was was so fun. So, all right, I want to finish with a little, uh, I'm going to switch it up. We'll finish some rapid fire. All right, you get to be the host now, Business Done Differently. You can ask one
1: question to me. We're mixing it up. It's called Flip the Script. So, you can ask one question to me. Okay. I know you ended your baseball career, but what made you decide when you got into baseball that it had to be more than just baseball? It had to be entertainment.
0: You know, it was interesting. So, when I was the intern for Spartanburg, you gave me the opportunity, you and Jack, to either be an assistant GM in Forest City or be a GM in Gastonia. Uh-huh. And I looked, I was like, this is the opportunity to actually have make an impact. So at twenty-three, I don't care if I'm being paid ten thousand dollars, the opportunity to make an impact. And for us, we knew that going in the first few days. I had a goal to meet with every single person in the community in Gastonia. My goal was that there was an article I found the other day. It said, my goal for the months of October, November, December is to meet every single business owner, nonprofit, and person in this community and tell them about the Grizzlies. Ambitious goal, unattainable. But I remember as I started doing that, everyone I talked to, they said, ah, we just don't like baseball. Ah, we're just not that interested in baseball. Or someone would say, oh, I like baseball. And I'd say, oh, how many games did you go to last year? Ah, we didn't get a chance to go to any. And I asked that over and over and over again. I started saying, there's a fundamental problem here. How can you convince someone to come to something that they don't like? So that's when I always said, I was like, hey, we got to no longer position ourselves as a baseball team. And they're like, but that's what you do. I'm like, no. If you position it as a circus, we just happen to play baseball. And so we started testing. and it was like, wait, people are really excited to come to whether it was Hannah Montana night or the grandma beauty pageants, like all the senior homes wanted to be a part of it. Like that's proof. Having senior homes want to come to a baseball game and be a part of it. Like having tons of kids that would never come out to a game coming for Hannah Montana night, it was different. So that's what we learned. And then the other mentors like Mike Fack, you gave me, I remember, Ken, I'd really like to go to this conference. And I was so scared to ask because it was like $500. And I was like, we don't have $500. <laughs> because as I shared, like I went time without paying myself to keep money in, in the team. And you were like, no, let's do this. Every single trip you supported because, again, part of that probably given me the ownership mentality.
1: It was. It really was. And, you know, you, we hired you and we made the commitment to say, let's let this – let's make this work. Let him do what he thinks is right. And yes. if we make a mistake, we make a mistake. Yes. We hadn't done anything right in the in five years prior to you being there. So <laughs>
0: You did some things right. There were a few nights I did okay. All right. Go to question time. I believe if you want better answers in business, you need to ask better questions, whether throughout your – 40 years now with your tax? Your, 43 years. 43 years for 15, 20 years, whatever it was in baseball team. And even just in, in life working with other people, what are some of the best questions you're asking? That I'm asking? Yeah, that? if you're asking, so for instance, whether you're working with clients, what are questions that really help? Because I, I believe if you want to get answers for people, what are some good questions if you may you, be asking?
1: If I'll go, I mean, one of the most basic one is you, you turn it around and it goes for the whole concept of, What do you expect? What do you want from me? Mm. What can I do to make your life better? What can I do to make, to give you more information? Mm. What do you want me to do to lower your taxes? Mm. And basically that's their answer. I want you to lower my taxes. Yes. But again, I think the important part is to flip it around to have the client or the employee be able to determine what they want.
0: They make the decision, yes. so they it's up, to, the up to them whether they're successful. You're just the guide. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. I'm a, a means to an end. Love it. All right. Fail and tell. Give me one thing that you'd have failed with with any of your businesses and share some, maybe something
1: you learned from it. That I failed with? Yeah. Well, where should I start? <laughs> uh, I guess with some of my larger clients, you know, I tried to do more than I was capable of doing. hmm And the concept that every one of my clients, they were my only client, I had some very sizable clients that I didn't service as well as I could because I just didn't have the time. Mm. Instead of walking away and saying, let me get you somebody who could, I attempted to do it. Mm. I attempted to be more than I could be. Do more than what you can be the best at. All right. Different strokes. What's one view of business that
0: you've had that may be a little different than most?
1: What's one view of business?
0: Just something you think differently than maybe other people, and hey, this is how you can be successful, or this is how I do things.
1: Okay, I think as an accountant, yeah, I'm not your typical accountant. People don't look at me as strictly a numbers guy; they look at me as more a consultant, and they always have. And it was never popular for an accountant to be more than a numbers guy or an accountant, Mm. especially in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Now it's a little different. More clients want you to diversify, but even so, you stick to what you do best and that you feel comfortable with, and that the client respects you for, and you're better off. It yeah. works out much better. 100%. All
0: right. So we're, we're here in Puerto Vallarta right now. Obviously, this is our second trip, me and Emily. We've had an amazing experience both times. I think this is a good segue into now that's what I call service. What's some of the best service experience? Is there a service story? Someone, whether it's a business, a restaurant, anyone that did something that you were just wowed
1: at, that you and Betty, you wouldn't believe what happened today. I find it here, it hit us mostly here that you wouldn't believe what this resort offers from the room service to the, everything is done with a smile. Everything is done with let, what can I do to make these people more comfortable? Mm-hmm. And it, it fits in with the whole concept of what I believe in yes, is yes. that you turn it around to what does the client or what does the guest expect, or you want to exceed what they expect. Mm-hmm. And in this location, I mean, you look at the room, and you don't, Get a room like this anywhere. Mm. It's insane. And the service, they bend over backwards to make your life better. And mm. they're constantly thinking of ways to make it better for you. You know, you've been here for many years. Are there certain, is there a certain story or thing that they surprise you with? I mean,
0: I know i just walking around here and in the way they say, to salute you. They put their hand in their chest and always mm. say, buenos dias and greet you. Anything that where they surprise you in bed you're like, or a waiter or a
1: waitress or someone, your concierge. I mean, I would think of a waiter that we've gotten very, very close to. He's done things that just defy description. We had a Valentine's Day dinner here one night, and we had a reservation at our favorite restaurant on premises. And there, there are 15 restaurants here. And this, the waiter that we really liked was at this one restaurant, Azure. And as we got to our table, he had laid out rose petals from the time we walked into the restaurant to our table. And he had it laid out totally. Now, I can give you another story of the same waiter that's one night we went to that restaurant. It's a fancy restaurant. It's yeah. not the kind of restaurant you go in 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 bathing suits. <laughs> and we had just played around the golf and it was ninety degrees and it was hot. And we got into the restaurant just to take a look at the view. We had no intention of staying because we, we had a dinner reservation for a couple of hours later. We were going to go home and clean up. And we walked in, there were four of us, and we walked in and we looked like we had been on a golf course for four hours, and we sat and we decided to have a, a cocktail. And one cocktail turned into many cocktails. <laughs> and to the point where the same waiter came up to my wife and said, Miss Betty, I think it's time for you to have some dinner. <laughs> and it took us right to the table. <laughs> nice
0: experience. They just, just took care of me. Yeah, they, yeah. Did. they did. I remember back uh, in the day I was asking, what is it about taxes? Like, what is, like you are a numbers machine. You can do, I mean, I mean numbers more better than anyone know. And you said, we were walking out to the Port City Club and you go, I treat it like a game. It's like a game to me. I think that was very fascinating because no matter what you do, some may seem like it's stressful or cumbersome or busy work, but you made it a game. Can you
1: just explain briefly on how you made it a game? It's a game to me in the sense that I'm challenging myself to save as much money for the client as possible Yes, and legally. I'm aggressive and and I always will be, but it's always legal. But if a client comes to me with tax issues, he wants me to save him money. And to me, learning as much about the tax code as possible gives me the tools so that I can do things that maybe some other clients and other accounts don't think of. And And to me, it's a challenge. And you want to make it, like if I do a return one year and and a client pays $20,000 in taxes, I want to make sure that next year if he comes to me with the same circumstances, he pays less.
0: And you know, the whole mindset is 100% on the client. That's what's so interesting. It's not about how do you make more
1: money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's all I mean otherwise Jesse if you're sitting here chasing money you reach a point where it's like doesn't matter it's boring it's not what you want if you can do as much good as possible for other people yeah that's worth everything certainly you need money to exist but You want to make
0: this money's a byproduct. Yeah. So, I mean, we think about it every day at the ballpark and you saw it working together. How can we make it a better experience every year? How can we have more surprises, more unexpected? That's the whole mindset from all you can eat tickets to free shipping to everything. It's a game for us. Yeah. All you can eat tickets. (laughs) Yeah. I think
1: back to some of those things and I think I remember you and I worrying about whether a guy who had a wristband for all you can eat was going to take it back to four of of his friends and just keep feeding them food.
0: And, you know, back in that day, I was real, really worried about that. Now at the point, it's like, I'm okay if some people take advantage of you. It's okay. If you have an intention to be very good for so many people, I'm sure some clients take a lot more time than probably others and maybe take advantage of your time. Yeah. But it's and you changed.
1: know what? I think you're absolutely right because I think it's so much. Yeah. You know, you're here, you're doing your thing, you're helping them. It's it's all good. 100%. All right.
0: I want to finish the last few here. Magic moment. What is one moment in your life? You've had a lot of it. You have grandkids. You got an amazing wife.
1: One moment that stands out that you'll never forget. The day we got engaged. You and Betty. Yeah. That moment will stand in my life forever. Because we weren't, at the time, we had dated and split for a little while. This is back in in, 1857. (laughs) Just before Lincoln took office. We had split apart for a while. We stayed friends, but we wound up going to a wedding, a fraternity brother of mine in college. And Betty's roommate, and it was in Massachusetts. We were both in New York. And we weren't together as a couple. Yeah. And she got invited and I got invited and we had talked and we said, why don't we just go together? You know, we might as well go together. So we went together and on the way home, we wound up in the car and all of a sudden we were engaged. Uh, so how that happen? Come on. You're in the yeah. car. You're coming yeah, back. True. We, we left, went to the wedding. The wedding was terrific. You know, it was one of those things that you felt, you know, things were coming together. Yeah. And you, but you didn't expect it. And we went back to the bride's house. Afterwards, and for an after party. And then when we left the party, we got in the car and I was driving. And You didn't have a ring? No. I was driving and we were just getting into the car and Betty turned to me and she said, of course I'll marry you. Like, That's exactly <laughs> what happened. So you didn't ask? Oh, I didn't ask. <laughs> got, so. We just looked at each other and she said, of course I'll marry you.
0: And at that point you knew?
1: Yeah. And then we got engaged. And I remember coming home and, and talking to her parents like, what? We said, yeah, we got engaged, and like, then you had yeah. to get a ring. How much later did you get married? That was in August of. Oh, I hate to even say it, the year. It was 1967, and we got married in June of '68. Wow, that's amazing! And you know, Emily and I have
0: learned so much from you guys and seeing how happy you are and dancing and always having fun.
1: What role has Betty played in your success from a business standpoint and just in life? Oh, she's my rock. She's always at my side and she supports me in every crazy thing we've ever done from talk about buying baseball teams it's a crazy thing to all of a sudden spend a lot of money to get into a a business that you know nothing about she was away the weekend that i saw you know that i looked at this baseball team Mm. and uh, when she came home and said i think i think we should do that," you know for her to, to look at me and say okay it's the same feeling you got when yeah, we supported everything you did. Yeah, same and thing. She's with Emily. done that for me. She's been my rock. She supports me in
0: everything. Yeah. Same thing when Emily said we have to sell our house, you yeah, know, to go down to Savannah. We have to save money, put everything we have into the team. Same thing. You said belief. Like it sounds, this whole thing goes into just believing in people. I mean, she believed in you. She knows what you can do. You believe in her. I mean, has that just played a role in everything? Hey, we just believe in each other.
1: Yeah, we do. We're, we're always a hundred percent together. Even if we if we don't agree on certain things, I mean, that's normal. Yeah, but. We're always together when a decision is made, or we don't sit here and say, we don't blame the other one if something didn't work. Yeah. You know, so we did it. Just move on. It was
0: hot to together. Yeah, beautiful. All right, last few here. What's one thing you would tell someone to stand out in business or in life, or one thing that you've done to stand out in business or in life? I think
1: I've subjugated my desires for the desires of my clients. Mm-hmm. I make sure that I'm satisfying the client. And that has enabled me to have a very successful and very Happy. So it's always putting down, down. Yeah, their... but put their requirements first, whether it's an employee or whether it's a client.
0: Love it. You shared some advice you received earlier from a professor, the person in the tax industry,
1: but overall, if you were to say the best advice you've ever received, what would it be? The best advice I've ever received, I would have to say, was from Betty. It's always be true to yourself. If you think it, feel it, do it. You always want to make the person you're servicing, whether it's a client or whether it's an employee, you want to make them happy. You want to make them want to come to work. Mm-hmm. And her statement of, of always be true to yourself means, if that's what you feel, then do it. You know, make sure they're happy. Mm. And make sure you're, you're doing the right thing by them.
0: I love it. Finally, Ken, how do you want to be remembered?
1: Hmm. I don't want to be remembered. Very simply, I just want to be remembered as a, as a good man who loved his wife and family and was honest and had integrity. I love it. I love it.
0: Well, I'm glad we are able to do this. I mean, Ken, we've had more conversations over the years, ever, but we've never actually recorded one and shared some of this. No, and, we haven't. This, this was interesting. <laughs> a lot of fun. We've done a lot <laughs> of more interesting things before, but uh, like I said, what I've learned from you and basically how you've led and what I've learned from Betty and me and Emily, I mean, that's why we want to be around you. And we try to mirror that and be like that in a different way. We're maybe a little bit crazier. We maybe do things that are a little off the uh, – yeah, You do. A little you wild, know. but I've learned so much from you. And I think a lot of the people that we get to lead – hopefully uh, that's embodied from what you have taught me as well. So I can't thank you enough for being on the show and learning a little bit and having the listeners learn a little bit of from you. My pleasure. I learned that from a great man. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. Thanks for listening to Business Done Differently, where we believe whatever's normal, do the exact opposite. And that standing out is the best way to grow your business. For more information about the guest and topics covered on this episode, visit findyouryellowtux.com or shoot me a note at jesse at findyouryellowtux.com. Until next time, stop standing still, start standing out.